Welcome to the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We are your hosts, Michael and Lauren Falk. We are physical therapists, athletic trainers, and strength and conditioning coaches at Kinetic Sports Medicine and Performance. We will be talking all things related to athletic performance for Milwaukee area athletes. Sports medicine, performance training, sports nutrition, recovery, and sports coaching. There's a lot of misinformation and myths surrounding athletic performance and injuries. This podcast is designed to bring current, factual, and evidence-based information to Milwaukee area athletes. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today I'm joined by Michael Kiley. Michael is a sports scientist, clinical biomechanist, and strength coach that currently works at Training House a high-performance training and sports rehabilitation clinic attached to the Minnesota Vikings practice facility. Training House is powered by Twin City Orthopedics, who is a medical provider for the Minnesota Vikings. Michael's primary role is running the biomechanics lab at the facility, but he also does small group training with a focus on athletes that are returning from injury. Michael's passion is in using biomechanical data as a tool to educate athletes on how their body moves. His biomechanics work focuses on athletes that are returning to play following injury as well as trying to enhance their performance. He has a particular interest in return to play testing following ACL injuries, having collected 1,100 separate tests on 583 patients that are rehabilitating ACL injuries. While Michael currently lives in Minnesota, he was trained in Milwaukee at Marquette University, where he received a bachelor's degree in exercise physiology and his master's in clinical and translational rehab science. Mike, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, it's quite an honor. I know this is uh, this is fun. I I talked to uh, you know all the athletes that I born talking about force plate data and little squiggly lines. Um, I tell them that they can blame you for my interest in this, and now they can actually uh, hear from you. Good. I'm glad. And that's the thing is you know making that science actually relatable and understanding and why we actually care so much about it and geek out about it. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about that stuff. Yeah. Awesome. So to start with, could you give us just a little bit of an overview of your facility, um, kind of what you guys do there and what your role is? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I work, I'm, my title is technically a sports scientist and I work for the training house, which is a, like you said, a, a high level sports performance facility. Um, we are a collaborative effort. I like to call us because we are a facility that has physical therapy, sports performance, sports science, dietetics, sports psychology, massage, acupuncture, chiropractic. Um, everything under one roof that an athlete would need. So uh, it's an interesting concept having all these different clinicians that essentially are, are trained very differently, but all have a common goal. And so the, the idea is that if we can create that team that everyone has a little niche to contribute um, specifically to what the athlete needs, we'll be able to deliver a very individualized and optimal product. And so uh, Training House is powered by Twin City Orthopedics, great affiliate from the uh, physicians um, who are uh, responsible for the medical providing for the Minnesota Vikings. So we are a facility that's open to the public. So I train athletes of all ages from middle school through adult, um, from collegiate, professional, uh, high school, you name it. And so I, um, with my, with my uh, colleague, Nicole, we run the lab and our job is to take um, biomechanical data and make it actionable for clinicians. So um, we've got a lab with a whole bunch of technology, but the um, specifically, um, yeah, we can go into, we got, a uh, ice kinetic dynamometer, which is essentially a fancy word of saying a uh, joint strength tester. 
Um, we have three force plates and we've got a three-dimensional motion capture system. So essentially what that means is we use video to turn people into video games and um, use those video games essentially to measure what's happening during movement. And so before this technology was pretty um, like all in one place was, was kind of only available in academic settings and research labs. But our goal is to bring that to the people kind of similarly what you're doing at, at Kinetic. Um, and so our goal is to be able to make it widespread. So at Twin City Orthopedics, we've got a number of physical therapy um, clinics that refer us patients. So like, like you said, we've got over 1,100 tests on ACLs alone, probably another 300 and other various lower extremity injuries. But um, the goal is to provide individualized data that will help clinicians make specific treatment plans to um, reduce risk of re-injury and help understand the rehab process and see do we need to change anything? Does the athlete need to work a little bit harder? And it keeps everybody on the team kind of accountable to make sure that we're doing what we're doing. Um, and so, yeah. And so that's what we do in the lab is we, we collect that data and make it very actionable, but also I'm a strength conditioning coach. So um, it's my job to take the data and develop programs based on those individualized data points to try and make the specific adaptations that we need for that individual. And there's a, it's a laundry list of things we go through, but Hopefully today I give you a little insight on the, um, you know, the key points in, in, in our, in our structure and how we do it and why it's important. Yeah. No, I think that's awesome. I think, you know, there's so much interesting stuff that you're doing. Um, and we just, you know, we see the same thing. Like now we don't have all the tech that you guys have, but we see there's, there's people that have the available technology that could collect all this and they might actually collect some of it, but, it's not put into practice. Um, right. Whereas, you know, we might not have quite as good a technology. Like we always make sure we feel it's accurate and reliable so that we can trust the results, but we pick technology that it's going to let us actually go and, and implement it and start using it to drive a change in that athlete's plan of care. Otherwise it's just collecting data for the sake of saying you're collecting data and you're not actually doing anything to help anybody. Absolutely. And with that is if, if you're collecting numbers with, with no intention of making a change, or if you're collecting information with no intention of translating it to the people that matter most, the patient or the athletes, then it's essentially, um, it's, 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 I don't want to call it no good, but it's, it's not, it's not useful in my yes. opinion. It's useful in a, in a, in a grand scheme of understanding one little detail of a problem, but we need to translate the data. And that's the goal is if, if, if our athletes who might not have a strong background in biomechanics, physics, anatomy, if they don't understand it, then we can't change it. And so that's, that's our goal is, is both the kinetic and, and training house is trying to, you know, get these, this, this complicated technology with, with really, you know, complex data into a form that um, is explainable very simply. No, that's uh, that's awesome. Um, so I know that you guys do a ton of looking at different, different sports and collecting a lot of data. You know, I really want to talk mostly about ACLs today, specifically kind of the rehab and the return to play side. Um, so let's just kind of start out in general. What do you see as the current state of ACL rehab kind of around, you know, the country around your area? Um, and what are some of the, the problems that you kind of see with what's going on with this injury right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, kind of want to preface that I'm not a physical therapist. I am a sports scientist and strength coach. So I'm kind of a, you know, 
I don't want to say I'm testing out waters that have normally not been tested out by strength coaches and sports scientists, but um, everything we go over today is my, you know, personal opinion based on what I've seen, the research I've read. And so um, from my opinion, seeing what, uh, from all those tests, what I've noticed is that people are not strong enough. Um, and so I think that it's a globally, a, um, a systemic thing. And I think like a strength coach where in order to be um, fast and powerful, you have to be strong first. You have to understand how your body controls tension. You have to understand how your body produces force. And that's what's ultimately going to allow you to be safe and fast in your sport. And I think right now that the way some things are structured um, in the rehab process is that we're not allowed, like not, not, not allowed, but the access to stimulus um, that allows us to create positive strength changes is limited, um, especially in, in the physical therapy realm, what I'm seeing. And because, you know, in a typical setting, a physical therapist will see, you know, uh, an athlete maybe twice a week for the first three months, maybe once a week after that. And it goes like once every other week. Now, if we put that, that context into practicing soccer, for example, if we were going to practice soccer 20 times over six months, we wouldn't get much better at soccer. And so when it comes to developing adaptations, um, physiologically, like developing muscles, it takes a lot of stimulus. And so what I've been seeing in, in the lab is that um, in those, we'll call it that the first six, six to nine months post ACL surgery is that people haven't been able to have enough guided supervised stimulus. Um, because, you know, home exercise programs are, are a great solution, but a lot of times, you know, the body compensates. And if we're dealing with athletes that are still kind of understanding their body, they might find different ways that to you know, perform these movements that might not be optimal. And so um, I'm a big believer in do simple things really well. And so I think that right now, due to the structure of how um, rehabilitation is set up with access to supervised visits, um, it's people aren't coming in strong enough and they're coming in uh, a little compensated when it comes down to that return to sport time. Yeah. Um, that's my biggest thing. And so um, that's, that's what I've been seeing. And around the country, if we, if we want to kind of go more towards – you know, those that really focus on ACL, um, what, what I think people, people kind of get in a fuss about finding a recipe for what is the golden exercise, what's the golden variable to look at to prevent ACLs from tearing again. Um, and, and frankly, I just don't think that there is one variable. I don't think that there's one thing, whether it be training knee strength or quad strength or hip strength or core strength. Like, I think they're all part of the body and they're all important. And so I think right now people are trying to get a little too fancy and a little too specific um, and a little too complicated in something that if we focus on simple things early and often, we might have some luck long-term in, 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 in overall outcomes um, and with, with ACL injuries personally. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you hit on some, some of the similar stuff that, that we have and we see, but I mean, I think it's, I think the insurance model can be a part of it in the visit structure I'm going to be, I know you're not a physical therapist, so you're trying to yeah. tiptoe around it a little bit. I think I'm going to be a little harder on my own profession that <laughs> I, I don't think people, I don't think physical therapy emphasizes the importance of prescribing adequate load enough. I think that mm -hmm. we chronically underload people and you could, you can make lots of, there's, there's lots of reasons. And I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody. I think 
you know, in general, we deal with people that are injured. And at first we just don't want to do more damage and we don't want to make people hurt and things like that. But, you know, we need to, in these situations, we need to expose these people to loads and, and there's ways to do it even with the constraints of number of visits and stuff by manipulating exercise and, and making sure that you understand how to set exercises up in a way to target the muscle groups that you're trying to, trying to target. Um, I see too many kind of like what you were saying. I see too many people that make it too complicated and they skip the basics. Like I can't wait to get to the next fancy looking exercise or get someone running on an alter G treadmill. And they miss the fact that we didn't actually get their quad strong enough on the front end that would have made everything else easier. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Load is, I mean, frankly, everything. I mean, you're these, these athletes, right. When we have a surgery, well, it's a second trauma, right? So that injury is a big trauma. That's going to shut some stuff down. And then a surgery is a second trauma. So not only the healing, but this, this joint, this limb, this athlete all of a sudden becomes deconditioned and in order to become, uh, and when you're deconditioned, you, you don't have capacity for work. Right. Right. And that's what sport is essentially performing work. And, um, if, we don't apply enough workload early, then that athlete doesn't have the capacity to handle things at speed or the demands of sport. And um, I think load in terms of both, you know, weight repetition, um, you know, time under tension, it's just, it's, it's hard work. And I think people shy away from hard work because, you know, work capacity and conditioning and strength training, it's, it's, it's not easy. And the thing is, it's, you're with a, a population that's kind of sometimes in pain and they're a little vulnerable because of, you know, sometimes with a non-contact injury, it's, there's the bit where it's like my body kind of did this to myself and it's, you know, with stepping funny or whatever, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I completely agree with you. It's, it's a, lo- a load thing early. Um, yeah. No, I mean, and I think, I mean, one of the guys that I've learned a lot from with, with this injury is a PT in Washington named um, Eric Mira and he has a, you know, kind of a saying that it's not only the quads, but it's at least the quads. Like, yes, you know, totally. and that's what we've, I mean, I can't tell you, we've kind of, you know, started using, um, or really started using like objective measurements to guide our progressions. And, you know, we've held people out of running a little bit longer until they kind of got a level of quad strength there. And when we wait for the strength to come around and hit some of these criteria, it's like, I don't spend much time doing gait retraining anymore on running because they've sort of got the capacity to handle that, that force through their quads and they're not, they're not compensating quite as much. So it, it saves time on the back end by spending, you know, more time on just some of the simple, basic, just get stronger, add force generating capacity, add rate of force generating capacity, you know, do some of these basic things before you move on to the fancier things. Totally. And I mean, I think it's, especially when it comes to like, you know, gait retraining and stuff like that. And, you know, that's kind of those, those timelines that have traditionally been it. All right. Is your knee full range of motion? You got your quad active and you're, you're, um, you're not swollen. Okay. Now we can start running because everyone likes running because that run is what they're good at. And in, you know, running is what you're good at and your brain doesn't forget how to run. It's just like riding a bike. Like, yeah, we have some compensations, but at the end of the day, your, your body, if it never had the ability to handle deep knee flexion quickly, you're not just going to learn it all of a sudden with a few quad sets. Yes. Um, and so like it, the, 
I'm, I'm 100% with you in the delay of gait retraining um, because it comes back fast. Like those patterns are natural um, that are just easier to learn than developing muscle hypertrophy and neuromuscular control in increased knee flexion and deep positions. It right. doesn't feel great and it's hard. Right. Um, so I, I completely agree with you in that situation. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's good stuff. So, um, so what are you currently, you know, let's say in your lab, you've got a uh, patient that's kind of later on in their rehab process. What does a test with you look like? Kind of describe what you take them through. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that uh, our program focuses on is, is testing throughout the rehab process. So um, we'll do tests at three, like around the three, six and nine month time points post-surgery. And so the way um, going back to kind of start and talking about testing simply is um, all the tests we do are um, pulled from research, everything that's out there with some type of um, relation to risk of retear. And so those are how we selected our tests. And, and so I broke down our testing into three categories and these three categories are three things all athletes need. All athletes need strength, right? We talked about that. What can our muscles produce with force wise? Are they good at creating tension? Can they produce enough force? Number two is power. Can we produce force quickly? And number three is coordination. And coordination is a very broad term, um, but essentially my, my definition is, can we produce, perform multiple actions at once across multiple joints in, separate, uh, in, in different settings? Because at the end of the day, we need to have all those things balanced to go play soccer, go play basketball. And so if we don't have those things or one of those buckets, then it gives us as clinicians something to work on and it really focuses our mind. So um, at the three month time point, we test isometric quadricep strength at 90 degrees of flexion. Um, now at the three, we picked this test because the isometric um, means that we're not moving. The knee isn't kicking out at all, it's staying in put. And we can do that test at three months, which is a little, you know, some would say early because in that 90 degrees of flexion, that ACL graph is just kind of hanging out. There's not much tension going on in there and you know, we, we, we're not resisting end range knee extension. So we keep that 90 degrees so we can get a solid measure of what those quads can produce on the surgical side and compare them to the non-surgical side. So we can get our, our asymmetry measure of our quadricep strength. Um, then at the three month mark, we'll do a single leg squat test underneath our uh, motion capture. And frankly, what we're just trying to understand here is what is our sagittal movement strategy? So by sagittal, I mean, what's our knee flexion looking like? What's our hip flexion and trunk flexion looking like? Because we know that if we have a deficit in quadricep strength, that means our body's not going to be comfortable getting in a deep knee flex position. And so we're going to compensate in some way. Our knee might dive in, our butt might shoot back, our trunk might shoot forward on our surgical limb. And then if we compare that to our non-surgical limb and we have a difference, then we can give a little bit more insight and be like, hey, this is something I want you to think about while you're doing these exercises. Um, because single leg squat is something that, you know, it's a very easy functional task that everyone, it's pretty common in therapy. Um, at the six month test, we do those two tests, the, uh, the quad strength and the single leg squat, but then we add a, uh, a counter movement jump where we're just going to get a vertical jump and we do those on force plates, measuring our right and left leg on separate force plates. Same thing you do at kinetic, uh, hands on hips. And we're going to understand how your body's producing force between legs for a powerful movement, like a jump. Um, and then if the athletes, if they're capable, we'll do a forward hop. And so we'll be on our sing, uh, on one leg. We'll jump out as far as I can on that one leg, landing on that same leg. And we collect that with our motion capture. And we're trying to understand again, what is our sagittal strategy? What does our knee flexion look like at important times of landing? And so, um, and then we'll do that again at nine months. So in summary, strength, power, and coordination, 
strength test is going to be a 90 degree isometric quadricep strength. Power is going to be our counter movement jump. And then our coordination is going to be our single leg squat and our forward hop. And um, what we're seeing is that athletes that have a quadriceps deficit, a strength deficit, they're most likely going to have an off shift during their jumping. So favoring one leg, and then they're going to have decreased knee flexion in their um, single leg squat and their forward hop. And we, we pick those tests because we know that if we have asymmetries between limbs in those tests, that we have an increased risk of re-tear. And there's, there's plenty of studies in systematic reviews showing that, you know, landing mechanics are, are altered in um, following ACL reconstructions. We know that uh, um, it's interesting. We, we know that some studies, their cohorts show that with a decreased quad index, we have increased re-tear. But then there's some studies coming out uh, that, that are showing that in, in groups that are returning to sport, they um, – that's the Gokella group. It just came out in February, I believe. But they, they talk about how quadriceps strength symmetry uh, didn't have an indication in their cohort, cohort on whether they tore or not, which is an interesting concept. And so it's not just the quads. It's at least the quads, I think, is a very adequate way to, to support that. Um, but, um, yeah, and so that's the thing is we're, we're pulling these, these, these studies on what they're measuring. We're just trying to kind of um, find – tell a story about someone's movement, right? Do we need to address strength and training, power and training or coordination? And it's going to guide our exercise selection, our volume, our loading, and ultimately uh, our recommendations for return to sport. Yeah. No, I think that, uh, that makes a ton of sense. Are you with your isometric test? Are you looking at just peak force? Or are you looking at rate of force development as well? Great question. Now, right now we're looking at our average peak torque. So the best, uh, the average of three trials, we are not looking at rate of force development um, due to honestly, simplicity sake with our outputs. Uh, the biodex we have doesn't actually give us the rate of force development output. Um, and so we, we do all these tests in about 45 minutes, which is a lot plus a clinical exam. And then our goal is to be able to get this data out to the athlete within five days. And so right now um, we, we kind of, are trying to keep the number of variables we look at relatively low. And so we do not look at uh, rate of force development, but that's definitely been something of interest that we're, we're considering looking into. Yeah, no, I know that's, uh, that's kind of the same, same spot that, that we're, uh, we're at as well. Cause our uh, thing is, I mean, if, if with rate of force development, I've been, I've been doing more of it with, with kind of movement jumps, but most athletes have a quadricep strength deficit. And so like, to me personally, if they've got a strength deficit, that should be our focus anyway prior to how fast we're producing that force. Um, that's, that's kind of, what, that's what we describe it to them at is like, if you, if you have a peak torque deficit, you probably also have a rate of force development. Deficit. Right. If you have yeah. a peak torque deficit and then we still see some of the variables on force play testing or other things, then you might still have an underlying rate of force development, um, you know, issue in there as well. Right. And it's one of those things where rate of force development in itself is, you know, while jumping is kind of an unreliable measure, I mean, it changes jump to jump. Um, and so like, I'm st my, my decision hasn't been, I'm not confirmed on whether or not I like rate of force development as a, uh, I, as a metric of, of choice personally. Yeah. On, on the force plates you're saying or on the biodex? On, on, uh, on the force plates primarily, I know yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself, but, um, I haven't, I don't know enough about it on the, on the biodex to, to make yeah. a decision. No, that, uh, that makes sense. No, that's, uh, that's all good stuff. Really, really interesting. I mean, I, I just think, you know, if you, if it was done more stuff like this was done kind of standard across the board, I think 
we would see a lot less kids kind of slip through the through the cracks that are going back out on the field with just these glaring kind of basic just underlying capacity deficits like yes quadriceps torque and things like that i think you'd see the overall i think we'd all feel better about the overall state if even just some of these you know just some of the basics were were getting done more consistently totally and that's the thing is like basics 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 right like i mean it it's it's hard to it's that's kind of where you know i live is in that bridge and the gap between the therapy and the field um and so kind of moving forward with this like the criteria based concept. Yeah. So how good is good enough on these tests, right? So we have these tests, we have this data, we know what we can train, but then if we want to talk about return to sport, how do we know to be like, okay, yep, you're good to go. So yeah. kind of starting that discussion, like there are always risks. I don't, I don't believe that anyone going back to sport after an ACL surgery will ever have zero risk. Um, yeah. Right now uh, the field they say if we, if there are cohorts that show that if we pass criteria, we decrease rate of retail, which I'm all for. Um, but then developing like what those criteria are, like how strong quads, what our hot mechanics look like, what our jump things, uh, jump parameters look like. We're not 100% positive on how good, good enough or what good enough is. Right. And so, um, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Cause like right now, you know, you get someone at nine months and they test and they pass according to current literature, but then I've had it happen. Athlete pass all tests and they go back and they retear. It's like, well, what happened? It's like, well, we really don't know. Um, and so <laughs> um, thoughts on criteria. I think it's, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, there's no, the way that I explain it is like, okay, more than any other risk factor that we're talking about for the, for right now, there's a couple of key ones that we cannot control right? The number one, currently the number one predictor or risk factor for second injury is having a first injury, right? In, um, there's a study, I'm not going to know the name off the top of my head, but, um, it was in British Journal of Sports Medicine. It was done in Sweden. Looked at 838, I believe it was handball players. They actually designed the study to try to show that postural control was a risk factor for ACL injuries. So kind of balance Mm -hmm. and things like that. They found no correlation between that. Um, but what they did find was a threefold, so 300% greater <laughs> risk of, of a second injury for having a previous ACL injury in, in those athletes. So the number one risk factor by far is the fact that they already had one. Unfortunately, we right. can't do anything about that, right? And the second one is going back to a, a high-risk sport, so cutting, pivoting field sport. So you know, I feel much better about uh, my golfer going back for, from their ACL injury or tennis player than uh, basketball, soccer, kind of those higher level, um, higher risk sports. And then the third thing is, unfortunately, and, and it's this whole separate issue, but unfortunately right now, gender plays a role and our female athletes are uh, at a higher risk than their male counterparts. And I think there's some really smart people trying to figure out why that is i don't think we really know um but it, it is just it's in the data right now that's what it that's what it shows the way that i explain to the athletes is like we can't do anything about those top three risk factors like they they're there we can't change them um, right. so then we go in the next one which starts with quad strength as the basic thing and i just tell them like we need to control the controllables that we can we do have a say over like developing uh, torque and and gaining your range of motion and all of these other things and then 
you know, at, at that point following a, a structured return to play program. And I think we all sleep pretty well that we did everything possible currently and it's not a guarantee, but um, you know, you're not wondering what if. Yeah, totally. And that, that's the thing is if you check the boxes, you can kind of sleep well at night. Um, it's the one that doesn't work. It really keeps me up, but um, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's a good point. And so like, you know, as this progresses, because we don't know, I think that it'll be interesting to see kind of what, you know, relative standards there are, whether it be like relative strength to body weight. Like, so it's not just, are you symmetrical, but are you strong enough? And that's a discussion yeah. for strength conditioning coaches, how strong is strong enough for a basketball player. And so for these athletes, like how strong, strong enough to go back, how, you know, call it concentric impulse or eccentric impulse. Like how much impulse is enough to say you have enough power to go back um, or enough impulse to go back and you know, how much knee flexion is enough. And we have some ideas on those things, but it's, it's very, it's a complicated question. And it's, it's, it's when it comes to developing criteria, it's, it's, it's a bigger question than we think. And there is no, you know, clear answer. Yeah. I mean, but I just, I just think that I think right now, just if we just said it, well, if we accepted that it's not perfect, but if we said a bare minimum standard, take away the majority of your fancy equipment, um, if people didn't have access to it, we just said bare minimum standard, they should have uh, quad symmetry. That's um, probably somewhere around 90, roughly 90% at least, uh-huh. and somewhere around their body weight of torque. And I would agree. then they passed, um, you know, some type of, you know, jump testing, some type of single leg squat assessment, um, kind of some of these basic things that have been published for years. If they just yeah. passed that. I think that would be a good starting point. The problem is, I think it was the, uh, Itherburn study, um, or maybe it wasn't Itherburn. I think he maybe was a co-author. There was a study that just surveyed the current state. And they just went and grabbed a group of kids that had been cleared by somebody um, to go yeah. back on the field. And they put them through those basic tests. And only 14% of the people that were playing had passed all of just, just the most basic assessments. And yeah. so that's what I'm like. If we could just get the standard up to at least that, I feel like then we could start, then we could start making some progress on these next questions of what's better than that. I think there is more, but um, I just think we need to get, more people understanding that this is not a three month, four month, six month rehab. This is a nine, 12, 18, 24 month rehab. Yes, totally. I, I completely agree. I mean, it's, there's plenty of research so that, you know, for the past 20 years, like the number one criteria for going back to sport was time and right. there was no performance based testing. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to, it, I gotta watch my words here. I'm talking to a PT, but like, why, like, why wouldn't to me, it seems kind of obvious that if someone's here, you have to pass a test to go back. You have to pass tests, do everything in this world. Why wouldn't you have to pass a test to go back to sport? And there's a lot of kids out there that, I mean, it could be on the procedures in clinic. They don't know what to do or people just stop going to therapy and they just kind of clear themselves. Or when they hear the doctor says, yep, your joint looks good. They go back. And so like, how do we make yeah. testing just something, some type of testing, the standard. Yeah. I, I completely I agree. I think, I think we keep, we keep recording podcasts. Yeah. We keep recording podcasts and saying, this uh, is what we recommend. But I mean, the thing is, I'm going to, I almost 
threw up the other day. I was talking to somebody and they are at a clinic and they've got a, they have access to an isokinetic dynamometer, uh, which is what, what you use to measure strength. We, we use a, a modification of it that it lets us get the ISO, just the isometric strength and it's relatively accurate and reliable. But, you know, I, at some point I, I, you know, want to get the, the similar technology that you guys have. So it's a incredibly expensive piece of equipment. It's the gold standard to test strength. It's what's used in all the research. And he was explaining to me why they use um, a movement screen. Uh, I'm not going to, I get, it's the functional movement screen, which is just a kind of a generic body weight test of kind of assessing what movement strategy you, strategies you have. Um, you know, definitely not wrong to incorporate by any means, but he was explaining how they use that to try to justify to the doctor why someone should be cleared to play, even though they still have this big strength deficit in their quad. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm, I'm just like, you like, no, <laughs> you know, you, you what? Like, that's just, <laughs> yeah. Why? And, and that's, that's a, that's a, you know, a societal thing as well is who can do it faster, who can do it best. And it, yeah. in my opinion, it's like, well, we're biased. we're biased. We work with these people every, especially on the PT side, we work yeah. with them day in, day out. You see them through this whole process and you have an underlying bias of you worked with me. You followed my program. You must have gotten better. I just need to find the right test that confirms my bias that you got better, right? Versus instead of taking the feedback, like the way that we try to do it is we take the feedback from the objective assessment. Like, did the person make progress or not? If they didn't make progress, then we need to ask why. Either the program that I wrote for you didn't work. Um, maybe the athlete wasn't consistent with the follow through or they didn't push them. They did it, but they didn't push themselves hard enough, something like that. Or yep. You know, the need, some people just take time. They do everything right. The programs work. It just, totally. it just takes time. And, you know, you don't blame anybody. You just keep continually reevaluating and updating your programming based on the data that you get rather than trying to just continue to look something, look for something to prove that you're right and they got better. Totally. And honestly, that's, that's, I mean, a blessing, you know, of my, you know, training and what I have with, with testing is it's, it's, it's made me, I mean, no, I definitely have my biases, but I mean, my favorite story to tell people about the way our lab started was me and my colleague, Chris Doney, athletic trainer. We, we started our return to place training conditioning test or program together. And when we started, we were convinced that if we fixed everybody's hinge and squat bilateral squat, then we'd address unilateral deficits. And so we, we had our first, you know, 10, 15 athletes we tested and some of our like six, call it 65, 75% quadriceps strength symmetry and with relatively low um, strength to body weight. And so we trained them on, you know, pretty evenly, like not necessarily supreme overload on one side, but they came back three months later and we tested and, oh boy, did they get stronger, but we didn't close that gap. And right. so it's like, all right, now we need to go back to the drawing board. And the program that we came up with kind of defies everything that like normal strength and conditioning kind of you know promotes in the athletics world we actually went to more of like a bodybuilding set and it's one of those things where it took us a lot of tweaking with and a lot of pre and post testing with it but we've kind of come to this 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 conclusion that these athletes need to train like bodybuilders to start because at the end of the day we need 
in order to have strength, you have to have muscle cross-sectional area, muscle size. In order to have size, you have to train for hypertrophy. And who does that better than bodybuilders? Right. And so we, it, it, it was a humbling moment when you do this program that you, were, you wrote and you, I had put myself through it. I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, we, we're going to get strong here. This is going to be good. And we tested and it did, it did something, but not what we anticipated. <laughs> Right. And so it's like the test retest. And that's one, that's one beauty about being a strength coach is that I can always reassess and go through that sometimes. And this is like not anyone's fault, but a PT only has, I mean, your setting, you might have a little bit more time, but in a normal setting, a PT might only have six, nine months and then they're done. They can't do anything else because of the limitations of the access. And that's where it's like, it's very hard to change things because you can't just start over with someone else and be like, Oh, I hope, this program that I need that didn't work for somebody will work for this person. Right. And so like, that's, that's what's one, you know, one caveat of like, I have these athletes continue with me so I can keep making changes, but that's something that societally, like, you know, call the insurance company and say, Hey, we need to have 75 visits. Like, and we need to test every, <laughs> we need to test every three months because if like long-term yeah. and there was actually a study on uh, cost effectiveness, the, the, of, um, uh, advanced, ACL rehab. So the um, uh, special surgery in New York, they, they did a, uh, a cost effective analysis of ACL reconstructions. If you did a certain normal traditional method of therapy, and then if you did one with a uh, intermittent testing and advanced, call it neuromuscular training or whatever they did, where you have some type of return to play program. And they did a whole model like of cost effective analysis on if you can decrease these risk factors to not have a second surgery, the, you might pay more during those nine months, but it'll still be cheaper than if you had to have a second surgery. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's kind of cool reading that, yeah. but it's just, um, that's not to mention yeah. just the impact on the athlete missing another season, long-term yeah. joint health, et cetera. So totally long-term joint health is key. I mean, one thing I've noticed in my practice is like, yes, ultimately my goal is to get them back to sport, but I really want their knee to be their knee for the rest of their life without pain. Yes. And like, it's, it's, when I explain these things to patients, it's not about like, all right, you came in for testing three days before a showcase and I give you some bad news. It's like, listen, that showcase you might think is the make it break it for your entire life, but there will be other opportunities to play soccer if we have another three months to focus on this. Right. And I don't want you to have a knee replacement at 45. Right. And so right. like, that's kind of where my heart is. Yeah. I'm the same. In the same way, it's like I, I want you to be able to play with your kids and run a marathon for fun and do whatever when you're when you're older. And um, yes, because so. at the end of the day, the percentage of the percentage of the percentage actually gets paid to play a sport, and so yeah. we we have to you know keep our vision on that concept rather than just getting a scholarship. I mean, yeah. those that are going to get a scholarship are going to get a scholarship. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's my opinion, but I, I think that I'm on the long term your knee hurts. You don't move that much. You don't move that much. You get a little out of shape and you kind of might get overweight and you have other health issues. So if yeah. I can keep you moving for the rest of your life with a healthy knee, we're going to have a healthier society. And if we have a healthy society, people are kinder, people are kinder. We got a better world. So that's my, uh, <laughs> there you go. That, that's why I do what I do, I guess. <laughs> that's, uh, that's awesome. All right. So let's, uh, let's get, you know, we've kind of, uh, wandered off on, uh, philosophy, philosophy here, but let's try to get a little more specific, um, yeah, for absolutely. any athletes that are, um, listening to this that are maybe going through this ACL recovery process right now. Um, so 
you know, I, I know you're definitely not a, not a PT, but just in your lab, I think you have a really interesting um, viewpoint of kind of what these segmental um, kind of breakdowns are for each of these athletes. So let's say in the early phase, kind of before their first three month test with you, um, what do you think athletes need to be doing and focusing on to try to um, get their rehab off to a good start where they look good at that, at that first three month test with you? So this is my answer from uh, one of the PTs I work with, Brady Soli. The three things that I believe and what we believe at Training House to be the main focus is we got to get knee extension, quad activation, decreased swelling. Yep. If we can control those three things, we're in business because those two to three months, like those bone plugs in a bone tendon bone situation are still healing. Those interference screws for the fixing of the hamstring grab, those are still healing. So we can do things that aren't that intense where we can load muscles without making the joint angry. And so if we can get the joint extended, swelling down and under control, like with limited effusion after activity, and then that quad activating, we're in business. Because then at the three-month mark, you're going to start feeling better anyway. We can do more. But if at that three-month mark, we're still dealing with intense swelling, range of motion, and getting the quads firing, we can't do fun stuff anyway, and our body will start developing compensations. Because I like to think of therapy in a matter of from a strength conditioning standpoint, you know, mesocycles, right? Which is our, our macrocycle is the whole program. We'll call it the nine months. Mesocycles, I like to look at in three month increments and the microcycles are going to be what you're going to do each week. But if we break this into three, six and nine months, those three month mesocycles in a normal healthy athlete, that's how a strength coach is going to build a program about three months. And so we need to make sure that we're at specific points at specific points of a season. And so an ACL rehab, in my opinion, is just one season. And we're going to have to peak at a certain point. And that point is nine months. We want to be ready to rock in nine months. But we got to make sure we're doing it the right way early. And so those are my, my three main things that if – and that's when at three months people will start working with me. And so if an athlete has those three things, they can be cleared to come into uh, the return to place training conditioning groups. Yeah. That, uh, no, that, that works well. What uh, Do you have any indication on – or what's like – a good quad index at around that three month standpoint. What do you typically see? Great question. So we actually are in um, the review stages, uh, the author review stages for our first paper from our lab, where um, we are trying to pro provide uh, the field with some normative data on um, quadriceps isometric quadriceps strength at three and six months post op. And so right now we did it by we did it by gender, graph type, and um, uh, meniscal involvement as well. And so right now, here, let me pull up the stats to actually make sure I'm, I'm saying this correctly. Uh, but our data um, says, I apologize for the delay here, yeah. but on average, no, depending on graph type, we're around 60 to 65%. So 60, 65% at three months post-op, we're in business. We look at that as saying like, okay, we're we're not really behind. We're right where we should be. And some people come in, get all like, oh, I'm supposed to be at 90. And it's like, no, this is like literally almost, I've had one person do that, um, yeah. out of a thousand. So, um, that's kind of my thought is 65% is based on our yeah. um, situation. Yeah, no, that, uh, that makes sense. Okay. So then after they, let's say they, you know, kind of do a good job, really knock out that first three months and are kind of in that, you know, full extension, no swelling around that 60, 65%. Um, what's the focus for the next three months? So kind of months four through month six coming into that next, next test that you do. Yeah, absolutely. So coming to that next steps, we're 
talking capacity. So this is where we'll start with that month three to four. We're going to train kind of like a bodybuilder. We're going to do some, some split squats or some shuttle leg press or some knee extensions to failure. Um, so we're just trying to build cross-sectional area. We're trying to get that muscle big. Um, and so we're doing, um, we're doing our, our, our six basic movements, right? We're squatting, we're hinging, we're pushing, we're pulling, we're carrying, and we're lunging. Um, all those things, we're not really focused too much on jumping yet. Uh, all of our movements, I like to call it, we're jumping without jumping and landing without landing. So we're working on extension, but we're doing it in a wall with wall pushes, stuff like that. We're doing, uh, you know, landings, but not actually off a box. You're just kind of snapping down into a nice strong position. So we're working on general um, knee flexion, or sorry, we'll call it whole global flexion, loading, and pushing uh, mechanics that are very low impact to almost no impact. And we're focusing on strength. And then, um, so that's for, for months three and four post-op, or yeah, so month three to four and month four to five, we're focusing a lot on strength and volume. And do we have the ability to do work? And then in that month, right before we're going into our next test, we'll start with some light um, loaded, uh, not, uh, I'm sorry, not loaded. We'll start with our, uh, our jumping progression. And I actually like to use stuff that's gonna slow us down and decrease um, compensation doing pushing. So I like to do a lot of weighted uh, like hex bar jump shrugs because it's double leg, it's low impact. The landing isn't actually loaded. Um, you're not going to get that high, but we're teaching how to push. Um, and so that's kind of our intro stage to jumping is that, is that, that last month before testing. And then um, at the six month mark, we should be able to do a double leg jump. And then if the joint's quiet and they have some practice, we're going to get our first measure of forward hop test. And that's not going to be perfect by any means. It's just something to say, we can handle this test. Um, and so that, that's, that's what we're focusing on there. Yeah. No, that, uh, that's a really nice way of breaking it down. So then uh, at kind of that six month test, um, what's your, what's your ideal quad index looking like there? So at six months, our, um, our average is around 75%. So about a 10% increase, um, which is, which is kind of, you know, interesting because it's only, it's not that much. Right. Um, but, uh, right now I'm, I have it here. Just trying to find it, but yeah, around that 75, 80, if we're at 80, I would say we're cooking with gas. Um, if, if we're below 75, we've got to kind of take our focus to not into that jump or running yet. We still need to focus another month or two on that volume and load. Um, and at this point in time, you're going to get people that either kind of have committed to the cause or not. Um, and so th this is where we see those that, that don't commit so much to their strength training and kind of want to go back. That's where they'll kind of hang out below that 75 range. Um, but right now it's about 75. Yeah, no, that uh, makes sense. So then kind of coming out of that test. Um, so, you know, we kind of tell, we suggest to athletes that it's at least, you know, according to the literature, it's at least nine months before you go back just cause there's, you know, about a 50% decrease in, in injury risk every, every month up through nine months, roughly. Um, okay. But, you know, we don't hold it as a hard and fast rule. We, we tell them it could be, you know, every athlete's different, nine, 10, 12, you know, sometimes beyond that, given certain circumstances. Um, so let's say kind of from the six point, six month standpoint on what, uh, what's your rehab focusing on? So assuming they're, uh, at that 75% strength, we're still going to have a heavy focus on asymmetrical loading. So this whole time through three and six, we're doing almost a four to one 
uh, ratio of surgical reps to non-surgical reps. So when I'm talking those those uh, rear foot elevated split squats or that shuttle leg presses, we're doing four sets on surgical limb, one set on non-surgical limb. We're doing that one set or two set to try and get some uh, st- uh, some type of um, maintenance to keep it functioning, but we're primarily trying to close the gap still here. And so um, as we get down that 75%, this is when we'll start focusing on more of our movement. And so we do nothing that's uncontrolled. So everything in this setting, our athlete knows what's about to happen. And so this is where we're going to introduce more of our linear D cells. This is where we're going to do 45 degree D cells, some 180 degree D cells, and just understanding how to stop and increasing speed. Um, we'll do our, uh, we still won't be doing much return to running, but we will be doing acceleration work. Um, so essentially what we're trying to do is we're taking those, those stages that we were focused on, um, how to, how to land, how to, how to load without impact. This is where we're going to increase that impact a little bit. Um, again, even with our movement training. So if we're doing acceleration work and we're doing bounding, we're still going to asymmetrically load and do more reps on that surgical side. And we're very keen to make sure that we're not doing that symmetrically because we noticed that even with our athletes that if some, if we only asymmetrically loaded our lifting, but didn't asymmetrically load our, um, movement, then we see that non-surgical M explode at the nine month test. It gets super strong because when we start going fast, people start trying to, by people, athletes are trying to utilize what they have and that is their non-surgical limb. They're comfortable with it. And so that's where, and even walking up steps, they're going to use that leg more. And so we're very conscious of still utilizing an asymmetrical loading scheme, almost three to one, four to one in our movement stuff at that at, uh, seven to nine month range. Now, hopefully if everything's going well um, from that eight to nine month range, and, and if they can control those movements, we might start doing some reactivity stuff. And again, they still know the pattern. Um, like if I'm going to say, hey, you are going to run up and you're going to cut 90 degrees to the left and you're going to cut 90 degrees to the right. Like I'm going to tell them exactly what's going to happen, but I might have them start on a clap or something like that. Kind of that, you know, keeping the task the same, but changing the constraints a little bit. Um, but at this point in time, we're not really focused on, this is our priority. We're not focused on sports specific because at this point in time, nine months, like our goal is at nine months, they should transition into our small group, unrestricted sports performance training. And so um, that's what we're focused on is that that nine month mark, they should be able to handle everything in a controlled environment where they know what's happening. They've got solid D cells at the nine month test. They're hopefully at that 90% quad symmetry. They're jumping evenly, they're forward hopping evenly and they're single leg squatting evenly. And so that's at that nine month mark that you should, in my opinion, be essentially solid. Like you're not dynamic yet, but you're solid. If, if I had to, uh, yeah. if I had to point that out. No, that's uh, that's that's awesome. That's a good program. I'm I'm intrigued by the asymmetrical loading thing. We'll have to talk about that more. Do you do you see? Do you have any concerns with like that the non-involved leg is not getting strong enough either, since it's kind of been untrained for the past year? That's a great question. And yes, I do have concerns. And this is something that I don't have an answer to um, yeah. because. I have like, we have the data to show that this surgical, the non-surgical limb is okay. It's got good relative strength. It's got good hot mechanics. It's got good loading, but subjectively what we're getting from our athletes are when they're in the weight room, they're saying, I feel weaker on my non-surgical limb. And so to me, I look at that. I'm like in the weight room, they feel stronger on their surgical limb at this nine month mark, but on the field they're when we're doing movement stuff, they're really utilizing that non-surgical limb. If we go, um, if we just let them go free. And yeah. so like I am 
concerned about that. And that's where, you know, going back to the time constraints, because people at this nine month mark, they're starting to itch. They want to go back to sport. And so ideally at that nine month mark, if we can get a solid month of equal bilateral training, um, this is all belief. I don't have data to support this, but this will, you know, bring that non-surgical limb back to where it is, um, hypothetically. And yeah. so that, that's the thing is, you know, not even talking about retear, but contralateral injury injury is just as high risk for these athletes as, as not. And so it's a really good point you bring up. Um, we, we've been focused so much on, well, the surgical limb cannot do all it needs to do. So with the time we have, we want to focus a lot on that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we're, yeah, no, we I don't, hope, I don't have the yeah. answer either. I just was, yeah. uh, I was curious. One of the, the one thing that we've, I, I have not done asymmetrical movement stuff. I think that's interesting and makes a yeah. ton of sense. One of the ways that we've approached it is, so we, we standardize it. If we don't have a baseline test to compare it to, we standardize it to their body weight and we won't cut back on any sets or reps on their uninvolved side until they at least meet, um, you know, greater than their body at equal or greater than their body weight in quad quadriceps torque at, yeah. um, on their uninvolved side. If they kind of get to that baseline, then we'll start, we won't stop training it, but we'll start going asymmetrical to then close the gap. Cause we feel like then we're, we, we want to maintain there and, and shrink it. Yeah. But I'm intrigued by your idea. It makes sense. Yeah. And we, we've seen good results with it. And also with this loading pattern, um, and we kind of got this from, uh, it was kind of anecdotally, but what we've seen with a lot of athletes is even with essentially now we're at six months of asymmetrical loading, we still see strength increases on the non-surgical limb. Right. And I look at that. I'm like, what the heck, how, how is this happening? And my thought is, um, and this is me not knowing anything about this, but we, uh, we use a lot of BFR at our clinic and, you know, you see people doing, you know, essentially BFRing the legs for shoulder rehab, because if we can, you know, get those metabolites flowing or whatever, correct me if I'm wrong here, you know, the science more than I do. Then if we get the same, you know, metabolites that promote muscle growth going through our whole system, do we have an effect on upper extremities if we yeah. BFR the lower extremities? And so my thought is, all right, well, we're doing all this hypertrophy and strength training on one leg our system is still getting those hormones that promote muscle growth. And so is our non-surgical limb benefiting from that? And so anecdotally, I do see that, but I don't know why. And I'm just trying, I'm yeah. currently trying to figure that out. No, it's interesting. I mean, I think, so, I mean, yeah. we've got some stuff with uh, some research with like limbs that are in cast. You know, if you train that arm that's not in the cast, you can see like a 10% strength carry over to the other side and things like that. So yeah, it's definitely, yeah. there's definitely the body's crazy, man. Yeah. And that's when it gets too deep where I get a little scared. I'm like, I need to watch what I say and do because I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's uh, that's awesome. So we kind of already have talked about this a little bit earlier. So it sounds like kind of recommendations for returning to the field, kind of a minimum of the nine months, um, strength, uh, power coordination, but what are kind of your, what are your guidelines before somebody goes, goes back and maybe, Along with that, something we haven't talked about, like when you say they go back to the field, are you talking about they're playing games or what is, you know, what is that, um, what does go back mean for you? Yeah, great question. So this is a, uh, something that we're, you know, because of those, that new Bill Keller paper, essentially saying that um, those that returned to sport and tore their ACLs didn't test any differently than those that didn't. 
um, it kind of gets our brains going in a way where we're like, all right, like, is it, should there be so much weight on our tests? Right. Because, you know, and this is something where I, I don't know yet, but one thing that we do is subjectively, I want every athlete to go through a full reactive setting with me before going back to the field. So they need to be able to cut reacting to me playing, I don't want to call it one-on-one, but like similar chaotic drills where they have to stop and start without even thinking about what's happening against me or uh, an athlete that we're working with in, um, in a controlled setting before going back to play. But uh, there, there's a paper that um, we kind of use to guide our uh, return to play. And so it's a likelihood of ACL graft rupture not meeting six clinical discharge criteria before return to sport associated with four times greater risk of rupture. And so it's, uh, they call it crisis is the author and it was 2016 and they had a graph in there where essentially what they did is they, they showed that in their cohort, those that retour, re retour their ACL, the majority of them, 70% of all the ACL tears, the retears happened in the first 200 days after returning to sport. So to me, right? Like it all depends on when they went back, but that concept, it's a big spike. And so I believe we need to treat return to play just like we would any other periodization program for a new athlete starting in a weight room. And by that, I mean, we need to start with what we call our general physical preparedness phase. And so that means, do we have capacity? And so I like to give my athletes a return to sport calendar. So what I do is I have them give me a calendar of all their practices and games over the first three months after they've, you know, talked to their doctor, doctors cleared them, their PTs cleared them, and they've got, um, sufficient strength and, and hot mechanics. And they're, you know, kind of gone through the progression have done some reactive stuff with me that they're, they're based on traditions safe to go back to sport. And so um, they give me the calendar and then I, with uh, a PT, we sit down and we, we say, all right, what are our limit? What are, what do we want to do to progress this? And so I, in an ideal world, um, when it comes down to the return to sport, it is a 15 week process. Okay. Which is a long time. And that's 15 weeks until you are, unrestricted can play the whole game. Now, how many athletes follow that? I'm going to say a pretty low percentage because after about a month and they're back, they're like, all right, I feel good. And they go, but just putting that in their head and not letting them go back and spike their load, like going and playing. Okay. You got cleared on a Thursday. You're going to fly to Florida and play in four games for a, a showcase. Like, no, that can't happen. And so we're very careful to emphasize to athletes that we need to gradually progress your, your, uh, your, um, your exposures, your exposure to load. And so we've loaded you strength wise, but now we need to get your brain and your, your body ready to play sports again. And the analogy I use is, okay, you take a defender in soccer who plays center back and their job is to keep balls out of the goal. And all of a sudden someone goes down and says, you're playing forward right now, where it's a lot more call it technical or a goal scorer. Now I ask my athletes, I'm like, all right, how long would it take you to adjust to that new position? Like, Oh, like four or five games. And I was like, exactly. So think about that now. You haven't had those games where you're comfortable at center back. So now when you go back to play center back, we need to have those four or five games to get our feet underneath us. Now I treat those four or five games over like five weeks. And so what I like to do is when they're still training with me roughly two to three times a week, they'll start their non-contact practice. And what that means that when they're at practice, they, no one can go near them. They're wearing a penny and they're not in any competition games. They're not playing any drills where it's similar to soccer. They're there doing passing drills, but nothing that can simulate any type of game. 
And they do that for a week or two. And then we take them into um, a non-contact plus minimal competitive setting. So this is going to be your three-on-three or four-on-four. Basketball, it's going to be your half-court, three-on-three drills where still no one can run into you. And, yeah, that happens sometimes. But it's just like wear the penny and make sure no one comes near you. And so that way we can gradually um, increase these exposures. Week five, six, we're going to go a little bit of contact plus a minimal competitive setting. So now we're doing those three-on-threes, half-courts. But you're not allowed to do the scrimmages. We're still – and we're now six weeks post being – in my opinion, return to sport. Um, and then we'll go into, okay, let's get practice um, half-court field game scenario. So now it's pretty unrestricted at practice, but we're doing that for two, three games. And then we get a full contact, unrestricted practice progression, and can we do that with a duration set? So after you've done your half-court stuff, can we do, all right, you're doing full court, but you're only going to go for half of that time. So if at the last 10 minutes of practice you're scrimmaging, you're only doing five minutes. Then you go seven minutes. Then you go 10 minutes. And so the idea is that we're, we're progressing them linearly, just like we did with, strength, uh, with our strength work at early stages. And then when it comes to, okay, now you are safe to go against other people that didn't even know you had an injury and don't care about you, essentially. And now you can play a quarter of the game. If you're a 90-minute person, all right, you are only going to get 22 minutes. And we, we hope, and this is the hard part, is at this point – it's on the athlete, right? It's, it's, right. it's about independence and I can't hold their hand once they leave. And so these are just guidelines and recommendations. Yeah. Is this flawless? Absolutely not. But the idea is if we can educate athletes on the need for you are playing your sport, like appreciate that. Yeah. You're not playing a full game, but you are giving your body time to develop and understand the speed of the game. And while we're doing this, we're maintaining our training and we're keeping our strength games going headed. And then, um, then we slowly progress. And so the next week after, okay, now you're playing half week after three quarters. And then by the last we're going full. And so it could be a whole season, but when we look at that as if we can take 15 weeks, I mean, 15 weeks is another four months. So that is a whole season, but that takes us out of that danger zone of risk for retail. If we can get to that 15 weeks post return after nine months. So if we can get to that 12, 15 month mark after surgery, we know the literature states that the risk of re-injury goes down. Yeah. And so that, that's our goal is, is we want to make it as, as linearly periodized as possible um, because, I mean, these most athletes, they play a lot of games. They, and, yeah. I mean, in Minnesota, like, it's tough because, like, lacrosse player plays their whole season in, you know, well, now not, but because of the whole COVID thing. But, you know, when I was at, uh, when I was at a high school being a strength coach, we had to play our whole lacrosse season in, in five weeks. That's right. a lot of games. And that's a huge spike in exposure. Like, there's no way you can mimic that in practice to be prepared for it. And so if you have someone coming off an ACL injury that's not ready for it, oh, man, you're setting them up for failure. And so, like, that's our goal is to try and educate our athletes to be like, listen, this is going to be a grind. And we know you're not going to listen to us fully, but if you can follow some sort of gradual progression, we believe we will decrease risk of re-injury. Yeah. No, I think that's that's awesome. I think – I mean, I think you really hit on it right there is it's just, just the education from the get go of, we need to get the six, like for so long, it was like, you'll be out six to nine months. We need to get rid of the six months. It needs to be like, you're going to be out for nine to 12 or nine to 18. Or I'll tell you what, I'm pretty sure by 24 months, you're going to be mostly unrestricted in your sport. (laughs) Yeah. If we totally like if we went that way, I mean, the way that we, we break it up um, into three kind of phases of um, we say there's like a return to participation 
and that's kind of gradual to where you're yeah. getting back into it. Yeah. Same progression that you follow. Um, and then we go into the return to competition where you're going back into actual game settings again, restricted. Right. And then the last one is return to performance. And we're pretty honest with the kids that we don't think all athletes get to that level. Like that's where yeah. you're playing equal, you're playing equal uh, time that you were before you're playing at the same or higher level. Your stats would be the same. Your running speeds are the same. We're like, that's not a guarantee. You know, it's about, when you look at the literature, it's about 30% of people that have yeah. ACL injuries ever get back to that same true, true, true prior level where they're competing and performing at the level that they were before. So that's kind of how we consistent across populations, right? From high school up to pros. I'm yeah. not sure, but that's, that's yeah. pretty consistent, right? 30%. Yeah. And that's kind of what we tell them. And just to, from day one to like set the mindset that like, this isn't, this is a process. It's a journey. It's not, you know, Oh, your rehab's done. Now you're back. So totally. And that, and the hardest part about this is, I mean, going back to the education piece, like think about how many people we have to get to buy into this. Right. Yeah. So you've got to get first off the athlete to be like, yep, I'm willing to work for 18 months with you through thick and thin and be comfortable with you yelling at me for 18 months or, you know, encouraging me on the bad days and the good days. Um, you got to get the parents to buy them. And that's another thing where like, you know, it's a financial investment into both surgery and therapy and sport. And so if you tell somebody that it's, it's oftentimes some pushback because it is a financial component involved. Um, and then uh, getting coaches involved because for years, like this is kind of new, like, you know, we call it a, epidemic or whatever the the acl tear re-injury rate like where were they how many years ago i mean how many went just undiagnosed but we, we don't know but also kids weren't playing as much sport as they do now right. and so like these coaches who are running them like professional clubs and not taking into account and i'm talking the high school level not taking into account rest periods or the fact that they're going to school and they got a bunch of other stress and the fact they're playing on two teams between high school and club like it's, we've got to educate them on the fact that this is going to be a progression. And so I've had some coaches that are all in, they're like, love it. I, they, cause they believe in not having this happen again. And then you get some that are like, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I'm like, because you've never seen it before. Right. Um, and so it's, it's hard and it's, 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 it's tough because I, I mean, right now I've got a, uh, a girl who's, who's um, going to play division one soccer next year. And, I keep finding things that I'm like, you need to work on it before we go do some skill work. Like the other day I was like, all right, run as fast as you can. And when I clap my hands, I need you to cut to the left off of her plant with her right leg, which is surgical limb. And so I had her do it with her good leg first. And then I had her do it with her leg. She goes, I couldn't do it. She was yeah. scared. And it's just like, okay, well, if you can't do that here with no one against you, what do you think you're going to do? And she's 13 months post-op. And right. so she's totally safe to start this progression. But I think it's important to show these people that it's like, there's still work to be done. Yeah. Um, yeah. so yeah, it's, absolutely, man. It's hard. Well, that was, uh, that was good. That was a, a lot of good stuff. Um, I hope, hope, uh, that athletes going through this or coaches that are helping athletes go through this or other clinicians and providers that are listening that, that work with these athletes a lot are able to take stuff away. So I just want to wrap up. We, we ask a few fun, fun questions. I know you're currently based in, uh, in Minnesota, but, uh, What's, what was your go-to Milwaukee restaurant when you're, when you're in Milwaukee? Ooh, go-to Milwaukee restaurant. So I was in college and grad school, so the budget was a little, you know, a little steep. But I loved Oscars. Oscars burger is pretty great um, if, we're, if we're staying on the burger joint. 
And then uh, if we're going a little high class, you know, for the birthday dinner, we're going to carnivore. Um, those are, nice. those are my two spots I'd say. That's uh that's good stuff. Okay. What's your, uh, what's your, um, biggest athletic feat in your own career? In my own career. Ooh. Um, geez, it wasn't much. I, uh, my, my career was cut. My rugby career was cut short due to concussions, but I was in a, uh, I was in an intramural basketball league when I was a strength coach at a high school against the high school kids. And I was on the staff team and, uh, one of my coworkers lobbed up this, uh, pretty sick alley-oop from three point line. I caught it one handed and threw it down, uh, similar to Anthony Davis. And so I would say that's probably the coolest thing I've ever done in front of an audience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got to say that because I became an athlete after I stopped playing sports. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome. So Mike, I dunked on high school kids. That's my, uh, that's my, that's your kind of fame. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's good stuff. Mike, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it was a great conversation and uh, I hope that lots of people are take, are able to take good information about ACL injuries away from this to, uh, to help themselves. Um, if anyone's interested, uh, where can listeners learn more about you and what you're doing? Yeah. Um, for me, um, traininghouse.com that's uh, T R A I N I N G H A U S.com kind of poke around what we've been working on. Uh, if you're ever in the Minnesota area, please feel free to stop by and, um, Mike, if you can put my email on this uh, okay. post and I'm happy to answer questions for athletes that are, you know, interested in the sports science field. I'd love to be, you know, an avenue of, of interest, but also if anyone's interested in kind of understanding that return to place situation, I'd be happy to discuss. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thanks again. And thank you to everyone for listening and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search MKE Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, it will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we will see you next time.